Our first scripture reading today is from the book of Romans, chapter 2. Uh, because we are preaching in the Old Testament, in the book of the Psalms, we are reading in the New. Evelyn is going to come and read this for us. Evelyn, if you would. Romans 2. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. Well, we are preaching out of the Psalms this summer. Uh, we're taking a variety of Psalms from what's called book one of the Psalms, the first 41 Psalms, uh, a, a variety. We're kind of choosing a, a bit of a different theme. You'll see today it's a little bit different than last week's Psalm one, which is sort of a wisdom Psalm. This one's normally characterized as a lament Psalm. It's on the back middle panel of your bulletin at Psalm chapter 10. Um, Heidi's gonna come and read it for us and then we'll spend some time considering it together. Heidi. Okay, Psalm 10. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all of his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed. 
so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. All right, Psalm 10. Let's, let's get into it here. Uh, one of the more worrying parts of being a parent is when your kids start asking questions for which you no longer have good answers. Now, the early questions that kids ask are pretty easy to handle. Why do I have to go to bed? You know, because you're grumpy and tired. You know, why are we eating this and not my favorite food? Well, because it's healthy, because I want you to grow big and strong, because, you know, it's what we had in the fridge or whatever. But, but the questions get harder as the kids get older. Why is the sky blue? Why do we have different seasons? Why is winter so long? Uh, you know, all these questions, which I thought I remembered, but I don't actually know. Still, you can discover many of the answers on Google. But eventually you get to the point where the questions your children ask, Google has no answer for. For instance, we were on vacation a number of years ago in Mexico. One of my kids, quite young at the time, asked me, why can't you be a pastor in this country? And I, I began to answer and realized I didn't have a good answer uh, for that. In February, it seems like a fantastic idea to be a pastor in Mexico instead of in Ottawa. Google has no answer for that. Why am I a pastor here and not somewhere else? It's, it's not that easy. Now, those are simple examples, somewhat silly ones too. What about the other questions for which you have no good answer? Questions about sickness, questions about death, ends of relationships, job losses, tragedies, natural disasters, etc., etc. And particularly, God's role in these things. See, in Psalm 10, what we come across are some of the questions that God's people have asked over the years. Young people, old people, sick people, hurt people, persecuted people, people in all kinds of trouble, the psalmist is asking hard questions of God. Citing evidence, all this stuff about the wicked man, he's citing evidence that disturbs him greatly. And I think this psalm is a helpful one for us then, for all of us with questions, for all of us who are wondering where, where is God in the midst of all these things, and about a God who I think does meet us in the middle of our questions. We're going to take the psalm, though, in three parts. We're going to talk about the questions, how he kind of introduces the psalm. We'll talk about this whole section about the wicked, the wicked man, and then part three, the petition. What exactly is the psalmist asking for? Now, as I mentioned in the outset, Psalm 10 is normally labeled a psalm of lament. And if that's like a, a church word you don't understand, that just means this psalm is speaking not about joyful, thankful, happy things, but generally about sad and hard things. Now, I'm not sure how you come into church today. Maybe that feels very distant from your experience. It's a hot summer Sunday. Everything's pretty good in your life, perhaps. But be assured, there are times for all of us, times and seasons when such psalms fit. Maybe you are in one now. Maybe you will be in one in the future. But the psalm opens with its pressing questions. They aren't very long, but they do set the tone and topic for the rest. Look there at verse one. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? And why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? A few observations. First, questions, questioning, are part of a healthy relationship with God. And I'll tell you why I say that. At our church, we believe the scriptures front to back. They're inspired by God. They're God's very word to us. They teach us what he's like. They teach us who Jesus is, the nature of humanity, the way to salvation, all of that stuff. Now, some parts of scripture are descriptive, which, which means they aren't telling us what to do. They're just telling us something that happened. This happened. It wasn't necessarily a good thing, but it happened. But other parts of the scripture, we would say, are prescriptive in the sense that they are instructing us. This is how you ought to behave. This is how you should speak to God. 
Now, depending on life circumstances, a psalm won't always fit your particular circumstances, but in general, the psalms are classified over here. This is how we are taught to speak to God. And over and over, you read the psalms, one after another, many psalmists ask God questions. They ask pointed questions. They ask to what your ear, my ear, may sound like irreverent questions. Particularly if you're raised in the church, the kind of questions being asked in verse one, you may think, that doesn't sound like a polite church question. And perhaps you're wondering, is this how a mature Christian ought to pray? With these pointed why questions directed right at God. I mean, I can't recall the context, but I do remember hearing sometime in my youth Christian teaching where Christians were explicitly told we shouldn't be asking God why. And yet, this is how Psalm 10 begins. Two why questions. So is questioning God appropriate? I think the answer is yes, and I'll tell you why. I think the proper place to express our frustration, our anger, our doubt, all, all of our negative feelings, thoughts, I think the proper place for all those is with God. That's what the psalmist does. Maybe he's also complaining to a wife or friend or whatever, but in the context of the psalm, the questions are addressed to God. I don't think this diminishes faith. I think it demonstrates it. Despite all the difficulties he's having with this wicked man, he still comes to God with his complaints. If you look carefully at the grammar, the questions are addressed to God. They're not asked in a third person. They're asked like you would ask a friend a question. And further, his questions imply he knows the normal character of God. He knows how God normally behaves. He knows how God has revealed himself in the world. So if you look at that first question, when he asks God, why are you standing so far away? That question only arises from someone who knows and believes that God is a God who is normally close to his people. That as other Psalms say, he attends closely the brokenhearted and the failing. So it puzzles him. Why does God feel distant when I know he's normally like this? And the second question too also demonstrates faith. He asks God why he's not acting. He wants to know why God is hiding himself, which is sort of a kind of an indirect way to ask God to act. But he knows and he believes God can act. He remembers God has acted in the past and therefore it doesn't make any sense why God is not acting in the present. So you must understand Questions of God addressed to God about the character of God are what mature faith looks like. Maybe you could say it this way. God wants our honesty when it comes to prayer. He wants our honesty. He wants to hear our sincere questions. Lori Wilbert, in her book, A Curious Faith, she writes this. Quote, My honesty before him was all he wanted. He didn't want my blind trust or my white-knuckled attempts to clean myself up for him. He wanted me, all of me, all my history, all my brokenness, all my fears and anxieties and angers. He just wanted me to be completely honest. Prayer begins with honesty. It has to. If you're just pretending everything is okay in the world and in your life, what exactly does that accomplish? If everything is okay, why pray at all? But if your hands are empty and you wish they were full, well, that's a place to begin praying. If you're filled with anxiety and you wish you weren't, that's a place to begin praying. If you're fearful about being public with your faith and wish you were bolder and you aren't, that's a place to begin praying and on and on. Honesty is the doorway to prayer. And let me say one other thing about these questions before we move on. Though we are encouraged by example to ask our questions, answers are not guaranteed. The ways of God are not illuminated to us. This psalm doesn't exactly deliver on the answers that he's asking. 
Why does God sometimes stand far away or, and sometimes stand close? We don't know. Why is God sometimes very present in times of trouble and other times feels very hidden? We aren't told. The mystery does not need to short-circuit our questions, but it, performs just, it forms a backdrop of expectations. Faith is perplexed, but pleads with God anyways. So that's the question. So let's talk about part two, the wicked. One commentator I read this week in his opening remarks on this psalm said, no one has Psalm 10 as one of their favorite psalms. Now, if you do, I'm kind of curious. Come and tell me afterwards and tell me why. I think it's because, if this commentator is right, I think it's because this is, there's an extended description of a wicked person. It's very unusual for a psalm. It's not terribly encouraging. It's like, why is this here? We'll talk about it. But I first want to look at what does the psalmist say about this wicked person? And then we'll talk about why, why do we have this? Why, does it, why is it here? The wicked can be broadly, broadly categorized in two ways. This person seems immune to justice. This person is cunning in their sin. First, they seem immune to justice. We want to believe. We want to think. We live in a world of right and wrong. Injustice gets punished. Good gets rewarded. But the psalmist uses all these words, all these phrases to indicate the brashness of the wicked, the seeming immunity they have to being punished. Look at verse 2. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. They're not sneaking around uh, in their sin. They are pursuing their sinful schemes arrogantly. They're proud of it. They're like the mob before Elliot Ness came along. You know, they aren't worried that justice is going to come and you'll kick down the door and catch them. They are, they are just in, in pursuit of stealing from the poor. Verse 3, they boast of their sinful desires. Some of us feel ashamed of our sinful desires, not these guys. They aren't ashamed about it. They'll tell you to your face, look what I'm doing. Isn't this great? It's a source of pride for them. Verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, seek God. All his thoughts are, there is no God. That phrase, the pride of his face, you can almost picture like a sinful glow. They believe they're getting away with it. They believe there's no authority, human or divine, that's going to stop them. In fact, he's kind of telling himself internally, God doesn't even exist. And by the way, this atheistic posture, somewhat common to our time, in ancient Israel, this is extremely rare. Even if you were a foreigner of a different nation, they had their own gods. For someone to say, there is no God and he's not going to get me, that's a kind of an extreme posture. End of verse five, as for all his foes, he puffs at them. I love that word picture. He puffs at them. It's taunting language. He's not worried. It's the behavior of someone who believes he has nothing to fear. Verse six, he's talking to himself again. He's reassuring himself of his strong position. No future judgment, smooth sailing. And finally, in verse 11, again, speaking to himself, but this time with a bit of a different perspective, kind of saying, well, even if God exists, he's not paying attention. He's forgotten about me. Maybe there is a God somewhere out there, but he doesn't really care. This wicked person thinks himself immune to justice. They believe they're getting away with it and they're proud. And interestingly, for now, the Psalm does nothing to balance or correct that view. It's just sort of a statement. This is the world we live in. There are people who live like this. But it isn't just their perceived immunity. The second aspect to the wicked is their cunning. Now, cunning can be both negative or positive, depending on how we're using that word. When your favorite ocean animal or forest animal is cunning, that's sort of a compliment. Oh, look at that fox. You know, isn't he, isn't he smart? But when we say the wicked are cunning, we mean the wicked person in the psalm is is using all their powers, all their abilities, all their, all their brains to do more evil, 
They're not accidentally evil. They're strategic and they're motivated in their evil doing. Let me show you. Verse seven, look at the way the wicked man speaks. He speaks with cursing, deceit, oppressiveness, mischief, and iniquity. Which means it's not an accidental slip up. It's just not you, you know, on the phone with an airline agent and you're yelling at them because you really lost your cool about something. No, no, no. This is a person using their, their tongue, using language, using their words to hurt and to steal and to cause problems. Look at verse eight and nine. He sits in ambush in the village, in, in villages, in hiding places he murders, he watches stealthily, he lurks like a lion, he lurks so that he can seize and defraud the poor. Something important about this psalm is that the evildoer is not described, not pictured as an outsider to Israel. There's no complaints here about foreign armies, invaders from afar. The villages, that, that comment, that is a reference to the villages of Israel. That is where he's sitting in ambush. He's from among the people. He's one of them. But he's not acting like them. Instead of worshiping or instead of going to the temple or whatever, he's setting traps, he's laying ambush, he's getting ready to do evil. We often think as, as a church or as churches often think that the greatest danger comes from outside the church. And indeed, there are many dangers outside the church that threaten it. But we often overlook and sometimes minimize dangers inside the church, inside the people of God. The entirety of evil found in the Psalm is attributed to other Israelites. No Satan, no demons, no evil, no evil powers, no foreign nations, Israelites. And that's a very sobering thought. This psalmist has experienced or he's seen evil from God's people one to another. And the end result of all the lurking and scheming and ambushing, if you look at verse 10, the helpless are getting crushed. The lowly are sinking. People are sort of crumbling under the power of this wicked person. So he's characterized by this immunity to justice and a cunning pursuit of evil. But here's the question I kind of want to ask. Why is this here? <laughs> why, why would the psalmist spend about 10 verses describing this man or this kind of person? Well, I think there's two reasons. One is it conscripts others into resistance against evil. Conscripts others into resistance against evil. Imagine for a moment I told you Hey, there's someone who lives on your street on the, or on the floor of your apartment building or whatever, and they run a restaurant. And at their restaurant, did you know they are stealing tips from their employees, they're cheating their customers, they're lying on their menu, uh, and plus the whole restaurant is a kind of front. They're doing something illegal in the back room or whatever. And that person lives on your street. Well, if you heard that, and if it was true, if I was a trustworthy source, you'd feel indignant and shocked and surprised, and hopefully you'd be motivated to take action. That news, that announcement would draw you in. But let's say for a moment that that person, instead of living on your street, what if that person went to a Christian church here in the city? What if you're told, oh, they go to your church, our church, and if you heard about their evil dealings, wouldn't you want to do something? See, by naming evil where we find it, where we see it, we recruit others into resisting it. I remember learning about the, the fast cash check cashing industry and how it often preys or mainly preys on people who are already struggling, charges them exorbitant amounts of interest to borrow money just for a week or two. And it really changed my opinion about these places. Up until then, I hadn't given much thought to it. You walk past Money Mart or whatever and it's no big deal. But now it's like, oh, I'm, I'm actively opposed. How do we change this? Can we do anything about this? Sometimes sin has to be named, has to be ushered into the light so it can be resisted. And this psalm, I think, functions partially as a call to action for the people of God. Watch out for evil in your midst. 
Join in the opposition to it. The second reason for the long description, I think is because of the pain of the psalmist. It's likely that this goes on verse after verse after verse because of the experience. This person is disturbed by what they've seen, but disturbed by what's happened to them. And it's not enough for the psalmist merely to call out evil once and then be done with it. They feel the need to explain every nuance of what the wicked person has done, what, what they are. If you've sat with someone who's been betrayed, maybe by a good friend, maybe by a spouse, a partner, you know they often have a lot to get off their chest. The length of description often correlates with the depth of pain. And so we come to this psalm, it's an unnamed author, but with our correlation, we can just sit just for a moment with the heaviness of what the psalmist has endured. This person has seen great evil done by someone that they probably considered a fellow worshiper of God. Jen and I recently watched Shiny Happy People, which is a documentary about Bill Gothard and the Duggar family. And it kind of chronicles a lot of the abuse and things that have taken place. And frankly, it was hard to watch. It wasn't an easy light watch. As a pastor, I find it difficult to watch people tell stories about the hurt they've suffered in church or church-adjacent worlds because of both wrong teaching and because sin was allowed to flourish and wasn't being dealt with. Now, perhaps you're like me. Perhaps you're like, I don't want to think about these things. I don't want to look at the evil. I don't want to face these things. Like, on one hand, I understand that impulse. But we have to also be a church that sees and acknowledges that hurt has been done by Christians, by churches at times. And this psalmist is in that camp. He's, he's seen, he's experienced a lot of evil. Okay, part three. Let's look at the petition. What, what, what now? The tone of the psalm really changes in verse 12. For 10 verses, there is a description of the evildoer. And though it's detailed, it comes across a bit like a third, a third uh, person tone of voice, like, like kind of like a reporter. But in verse 12, the psalmist moves from reporter, observer to actor. He begins to call on God directly to do something. And I would submit that prayer, specifically this kind of imploring, desperate prayer, that's the appropriate response of God's people to evil. Now, of course, if you can do something about evil, if you can thwart it some way, if you have the power, the ability to do so, of course you should. But I think this psalm mainly depicts an oppressed person who has no options, no power, no ability to respond. The only hope they have is in God. And what does the psalmist want God to do? He wants God to arise and to act. Now, why does the psalmist ask God to arise? Well, if you think back to verse one, that original why question, the the psalmist sort of depicted God as sitting far away. He's kind of somewhere off over there. He's not that close. It pictures God somewhat passively. And so the antidote to that would be a God who gets up from where he is, comes over and does something. Now, to be clear, these are just word pictures. We don't think God is actually sitting somewhere else. It's symbolic. Um, uh, But to arise means he wants God to get ready to act. The psalmist doesn't want passivity from God. He wants action. And what kind of action? If you look at verse 12, for God to lift up his hand. Now hands symbolize strength. They symbolize skill. They symbolize ability. For God to lift up his hand means the psalmist wants God, put your skills, put your abilities, put you into action. The request for God to lift up his hand means do something about the wicked. And what does the psalmist want done about the wicked? If you look at verse 15, 
The psalmist asks God to break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Now, what should we do with these petitions, these prayers that kind of sound violent? These are called imprecatory prayers, by the way, if you've heard that phrase before. But think about it this way. If you were at a bus stop and someone was harassing you and the police kind of rolled up and they said, excuse me, you know, what's going on? Are you okay? Do you need any help? Imagine you said to the police, yeah, yes, this person is harassing me. Could you break their arm for me? The police would say, no, no, we can't break their arm for you. They, I'm sure they would decline. So I think we come to phrases like this and we think to ourselves, well, if the authorities in our world wouldn't do such a thing, isn't this out of place for a loving, merciful God of the universe? Why would a mature believer ask God to do such a thing? Shouldn't they be praying for that person's repentance, the change of heart? Well, there are times and places we ought to pray for a change of heart for an evildoer. That's true. When we desire vengeance, when we feel like we want something to be done, the best place for those feelings, the best place for those desires is with God. The proper place to deposit those things is into the lap of a God who will do with it as he sees fit. The psalmist isn't instructing God, or, or is, the psalmist isn't telling God, I'm gonna go break his arm. He's saying, God, would you do, would you exact justice? And additionally, th this can be taken literally, but I think the best reading of it is actually as symbolic. As I just said, hands, arms, they symbolize what? They symbolize strength, ability. They symbolize a hold, a, a grasp you might have on something. So I think a prayer for God to break the arms of the wicked it's best understood as a request for God to break the power and ability the wicked have. Render them weak. Stop them from grabbing onto the poor. Stop the grip that they have on the defenseless. Render justice to them. Don't let them get away with it. And I think the second line in verse 15 explains well the first. The breaking of the wicked's arm is a request for God to be judge and jury over the deeds of the wicked. But know this, the safest place for a thirst for vengeance, if you're feeling that this morning, you wanna get back at someone, someone has harmed you, someone has wronged you, and you have all these feelings and desires inside, the best place for that is in the hands of a good and wise and just God. He is the appeal, he is the person we go to when we want our wrongs to be put right. So Psalmist petitions God, arise, act, do something. Any of you in need today? Anyone here languishing in the face of some kind of evil or injustice? Any of you aching at how far away God feels from your life or your situation? If this psalm is any pattern, call to him. Ask him to act. Ask him to intervene. Ask him to work miraculously, dramatically. That's what the psalm is calling us to. A book I'm reading uh, lately is called Praying Like Monks, Living Like Fools. I bought it mostly because of the title, if you're wondering. But it, but it asks this question. If God answered every one of your prayers from this past week, would you notice any change? Essentially, is everything you are asking God for when you pray too safe, too easy, that you wouldn't really knew, you wouldn't really notice if God answered the prayers? I guess the food was blessed, you know, or whatever. No, th this psalmist is asking big. He's asking for major help, major intervention. 
And that part of the book caught me because maybe it's time for all of us, myself included, to pray something bigger, something bolder, something more audacious and see what God does. Now there's a conclusion here. Look at verse 16 and 17. The psalm ends with what we'd call a note of confidence. See, up until this point, the psalm asked questions. He groaned at the evil. He asked God to act. But then in verse 16, the psalmist is now suddenly sure God is king and all the wicked nations are, are going away. And in verse 17, the psalmist is suddenly sure that God will hear the desire of the afflicted. He will strengthen their hearts. He will incline his ear to them and give justice to the fatherless and oppressed. Now, compared with the rest of the psalm, this is quite a high level of confidence. The psalmist isn't even asking. He's just like, yep, I know God's going to do it. I feel sure. Where does the surge of confidence come from? In the case of the psalmist, we don't, we don't exactly know. We aren't told. Perhaps he reflected on the history of Israel, remember all that God has done. Maybe the Holy Spirit was working on him as he was composing this psalm. But we, frankly, we aren't sure. Where does this confidence come from for the psalmist? I don't know. What I can tell you is where we get that kind of confidence from. See, how can you know that God will intervene and judge evil? How can you be sure that God will hear you when you cry to him? How can you be sure that, that the, the needy people won't be forsaken? It's because of the cross. It's because in the life and death of Jesus, we see a God who gets into the arena against evil. He doesn't stand far off. He doesn't hide in the face of trouble. He doesn't forget the afflicted. He comes, he arrives. And on the cross, at the end, God defeats evil. He triumphs over it. Paul writes, I love it. He says, Jesus makes a spectacle of evil. It looks ridiculous. Now, why does evil still exist? Why does it still sort of sometimes win? We don't know. What we do know is that evil has a short rope. Evildoers will not thrive forever. Justice will be done. As Christ has come once, so he will come again to rescue his people. So if you are wondering, am I alone in this struggle? Does God see? Does God know? Does God care about me, about my life, about our country, about our world? The cross responds with a resounding yes. God has come. He has endured evil. He has battled it. He has overcome it. And now by his spirit, he walks with all of us who groan. Do we still question? Sure, sometimes. Do we still doubt? Sure, sometimes. But Christ has died. Christ has risen and Christ will come again. That's the mystery of faith. This is what we proclaim. Let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful and grateful that such psalms as Psalm 10 have been included that in your wisdom and in your kindness and your love for us, it's not all just thankfulness and praising psalms, but psalms that speak to our, our darker moments, our harder times, the questions that ask, the evils that we sometimes suffer. Take this truth and drive it deep into our souls. May we see Christ. May we believe in him. May we love him. And may he return soon. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.